Please uh, take your Bible with me this evening. And we'll, we'll begin, if you would, um, in Acts chapter 1. I'll have you turning to a few different passages this evening. As we try to bring together the culmination of everything that's happening at the end of all things, the beginning of eternity, after Christ's coming. We talked last week about the, the last um, bit of the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. And today we finish our series. Now beginning when my family returns from our trip, we will be moving into the epistle of First Thessalonians. But there is still much that happens following the second coming of Christ, much that we must talk about, many of the things that really even compelled our mini-series to begin with. That the, the things that drove us to have this series, recall, was uh, rooted in Ezekiel. What we saw in Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 was the description of a grand temple, a temple that we, we cannot place in history, and a temple that, that we can't even really place in the context of the tribulation because it's a time when the Lord is physically present. It's a time when the Lord is ruling and reigning. And there's only one time that we know of in the, the whole of history, whether past, present, or future, where this happens. And that is in the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so in many ways, tonight we see our purpose for getting into this series realized. Through Ezekiel 40 to 48, we consider the reign of Jesus Christ. It's taught both uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's taught pervasively, specifically in the Old Testament. And in fact, when, when we, we boil it down, the, the promises of the millennial kingdom, the time when Israel's Messiah will rule over them in peace and justice, is so deeply rooted in Old Testament prophetic literature that it's absolutely unavoidable. You cannot go to any prophet of the Old Testament without finding promises that there will be a time when Israel will have a kingdom and be ruled over by God in a time of peace, and prosperity when their enemies are cast down and they are serving and loving the Lord their God. Consequently, this is why the Jews, even those who would fully believe on Jesus' name, were, were thrown off so much, were so confused at Jesus' coming. Every Old Testament prophet told them that a kingdom was coming and Messiah was going to bring that kingdom. Now, while on earth Jesus did um, speak of the kingdom, he de-emphasized the physical kingdom in deference to the idea of a spiritual kingdom. But just because he, he highlighted the spiritual kingdom does not mean that he rejected the notion of a physical kingdom. And there are many theologians that would claim that today, that Jesus didn't come to bring a physical kingdom, that there is no physical kingdom, that everything that Jesus came speaking of and bringing was brought in the first advent, that Jesus Christ brought it all through the spiritual kingdom that is realized in each of our hearts, Jesus ruling and reigning on our hearts as we accept Christ as our Savior. But that's not what the Old Testament teaches. 
That's not even what Jesus necessarily taught. That we, we, we could not possibly glean that from the expectation of Israel, from the teachings of the Old Testament. And even, in, as I mentioned, in Jesus Christ's own teachings, we do not ever see him say, no, I will not rule and reign. It just wasn't his time. Consider with me, you're in the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Excuse me, 4 through 9. Scripture says, And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Get this, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And I'd like to bring our minds back to this, the, the verses here in, in verses 6 and 7. And I'd like us to see something very, very important here. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, even after Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching his disciples, the disciples were still wondering when Jesus was going to restore his kingdom. And this is not just because they were ignorant. The Jews, even after three these disciples, at least three years or so, walking with Jesus, hearing His teachings, not quite understanding at all. Seeing Him die on the cross, not quite understanding at all. Seeing Him rise from the grave, recognizing what's going on here. Now granted, they still do not have the Holy Spirit. They still do not have the discernment of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. But even now, after all of this, they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, is this now the time? Is this the time to restore your kingdom? Now, if Jesus had spent 40 days teaching them and Jesus had spent all this time with them, you'd think at this point, if they had it wrong, Jesus' response would have been, it's already here. I have secured it. You've got your kingdom. But that's not what he said, is it? He said this, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. Jesus didn't tell them that they were missing of the point. Jesus didn't give them an O ye of little understanding. Jesus simply tells them that it's not for them to know when God is going to bring the kingdom to pass. It's not for them to know the day or the hour when, when Jesus will restore His kingdom. It's not for them to know when Israel will take its place and receive its promises. And so Jesus quite clearly does not ever deny the existence of the kingdom that is clearly prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And this evening we're going to look at three particular passages that describe the events following the second coming of Jesus Christ, and specifically the millennium. 
Now, we could go to many more. We could spend weeks digging into all the passages about the millennium, talking about how we put it all together. Uh, I would love to do that, but we're not going to. And so we're just going to take a few passages tonight and try to understand a little bit of this timetable, understand what's going on. We've spoken much of the kingdom already, particularly through Ezekiel. We taught on the kingdom, did we not? We, we taught about this temple. We taught about what would be going on. We talked about the peace. We talked about the prosperity. So I'm not going to linger on that. If you want to linger on that, you can go back to Ezekiel with your newfound knowledge and listen to those messages again and understand what Ezekiel is saying. But, but we're not going to linger on that this evening. But through this time together, we are going to learn some very important lessons about God's will, God's timing, and God's purposes in our lives. So now I invite you to turn with me to Daniel 12. Daniel 12, please. It's the last chapter in Daniel. Recall Daniel 9 is one of the most essential passages of Scripture that we have as it describes God's great plan for history. In fact, Daniel as a whole is a mighty cog in the gears. Uh, it's, it's an essential element of, of prophecy to understand timing, to understand what's going on and when it's going to happen. And there's great insight through Daniel 10 and 11 as well. But Daniel 12 is far more specific about the events themselves of these last days. And as we pick up in Daniel 12, we do so right about at the end point of the tribulation. Let's read the first 10 verses together. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that shall be wise shall, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to, thine, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard... But I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. We'll, 
We'll pick up there in just a moment to finish reading this passage. But in these first several verses, we see events describing these last days, a time of great trouble such as never there was, and then the, the deliverance of the nation, the resurrection of the martyrs, the salvation of Israel, the time, the, the time, the amount of time that this will take place being a time, a times, and a half that three and a half year period that we've talked about so many times, that 1,260 days, that 42 prophetic months, the, the uh, time of the second half of the tribulation. But it's the timetable in Daniel 12, verses 11 through 13, that becomes important to us tonight. Let's finish this chapter. Verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the the thousand three hundred five and thirty days. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So this passage in Daniel describes particularly two chunks of time. The first is the second half of the 70th week, described in Daniel 9, from the abomination of desolation unto 30 days after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Pastor, what do you mean 30 days after? Well, did you notice what he said? He didn't say that the time was 1,260 days, did he? He said it was 1,290 days. But we understand from Scripture, we understand from Revelation chapter 11-2, Revelation 13-5, from Daniel 12-7, from Revelation 12-14, from Revelation 12-6, that, there, that this time, this second half of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, will be 1,260 days, 42 months, a time, a times, and a half, a time. All of these match out. All of these agree. 1,260 days for the first half of the tribulation, 1,260 days for the second half in the tribulation. But now we see 30 extra days tacked on to this first bit, this, this first chunk of time Um, that we're describing this evening. There are many theories about what these days uh, are, what they'll be, how they'll serve. We're not exactly sure. We're not sure what the 1,260th or 61st to the 1,290th day will be. Some say that that's how long the battle is going to take. I don't believe that personally because I think the battle is going to be the entire last three and a half years of the tribulation culminating with the return of Christ. Some will say that's the, kind of, that's the amount of time it's going to take for, for the cleanup and for the establishment. But, but whatever it is, we see an extra 30 days here. And then on top of that, we see a second time period added. We, we saw this at the very end of verse tw- or in verse 12. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,305 and 30 days. So we see the 1,290th day as a milestone. And then we see the 1,335th day as a milestone after the abomination of desolation. This being the day that is called the day of of, of the blessed. The day where those who get to this day will be blessed. 
75 days following Jesus Christ's return, the blessing begins. And what blessing is that? Well, most likely, very likely, that blessing is the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. 75 days to clean up the dead, to um, establish the kingdom, perhaps even to build the grand temple that we see described in Ezekiel 40-48. through 48. We learn about the details of the millennium. There's not a whole lot spoken of it in Revelation, but we learn about some of these details in Revelation. And please turn with me now, if you would, to the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 20. So that 75-day period, we're not sure exactly what's going to be happening there, but we know that the man that is blessed is the man that waits and gets to the end of that 75-day period at the end of the tribulation, the 1,335th day after the abomination of desolation. Now in Revelation 20, Jesus has returned and judged the nations. Next on the list is the restraint of Satan in the bottomless pit. Look with me if you would, beginning in verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed. A little season. So here we see the plan. The devil is placed in chains. He is bound and he is sent into the bottomless pit. We know that this bottomless pit is active right now or, or, or holding angels right now. We have seen throughout the book of Revelation that the bottomless pit is the source by which um, many of the, the terrible atrocities will come. The angel that leads the, the locusts that have scorpion tails and such he will, his name in being Abaddon or Apollyon, he will be the angel, the leader of the bottomless pit. Um, we, we know that there are other angels kept in chains in the bottomless pit. And now Satan, who has never had to be in a situation quite like that, the Lord has always allowed Satan that, that freedom to roam. He will now be bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And this will be the time when Jesus Christ will establish the physical kingdom on this earth, that which is promised to Israel throughout all of scriptures. This is when Jesus will literally and physically, as Messiah, fulfill those promises and rule and reign from the temple in Jerusalem. Remember our teaching in Ezekiel here. Remember that temple? Ezekiel measured the temple. He talked about everything. The Lord will be in that temple. Those last Four words in Ezekiel, the Lord is there. That, that Jesus will be ruling and reigning from the temple. That there will be a river that comes from the temple mount. And remember that river flows to the Jordan and then everything comes alive. And it ends up in the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will see life for the first time uh, in, in, as far as I know, recorded history. 
because of the waters of life that flow from the temple in Jerusalem and there will be peace and there will be prosperity and David as prince will bring offerings to the Lord and, and the, the, the offerings will, will be recommenced in the temple. We talked about all of that and this temple is huge, bigger than anything that we've ever seen in history and bigger than anything, bigger even than the Temple Mount as it's established right now. All of these things that, that we remember talking about this is the time. This, this is when this will take place. This 1,000 years. Now, it's important to remember that at this time, there will still be living people on earth. But remember, Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. He is not walking to and fro as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5.8, seeking whom he may devour. That means that there is no external temptation towards sin. That means that that there is no Satan pressing people to do wrong. They are free from that. They are free from the deceiver. They are free from the, um, the accuser of the brethren, right? As he's spoken of in Scripture. And that's important for us to remember. Now, as we continue to think about this millennial reign... I would like us to read a few verses in Isaiah 65. You don't have to turn there. We'll have the verses up on the screen, but feel free to do so if you'd like. Isaiah 65, we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. And the scriptures say this, But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Here shall be no more these thence and inf- uh, here shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. We see present in this time, we'll pick up in just a moment, but in this time we see present both death and sinners. Did you catch that? That Jesus Christ is talking about a time of peace in Jerusalem, a time where He will rule and reign, a time where there will be joy in the streets, and yet there is still, according to the testimony of Isaiah 65 in this time, death and sin. This is important because this is placing us. This means we're not talking heaven here. We can't talk heaven, right? Heaven doesn't have death. Heaven doesn't have sin. So we're not talking heaven. Continuing in verse 22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So there will be perfect justice in this time. You're not going to build your house only to have it taken away from you and someone else to enjoy your labor. There's going to be a time of justice, a time of, of peace, a time of, of virtue, a, a time where Israel will be able to build their houses, establish themselves in the land, and then live there for a very, very long time. A thousand years, to be exact. Verse 24, 
And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Finally, we see it as a time of peace. Not just a time of peace among men, but even a time of peace between animals, between men and animals. This will be a time where there will be no longer that fear of man and the animals. There will be no more external compulsion for animals to destroy one another. The effects of the curse will be lifted. It it said that if someone dies at 100, they will die as if they were an infant. People will look at a person that died at 100 and say, wow, they died young. Their life has barely begun. Like in the days of the patriarchs of old that lived to be 700, 800, 900 years. If a person were to die at 100, they were dying as life just began. It would, it would be similar to, to us dying at age 10. That's going to be the mindset of the people in this time. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But not everyone will accept God and Jesus at this time. Even though He will rule physically on this earth, they will not all accept Him as their King and God. We know that all those who have died and resurrected, all of we who have perfect bodies, you know those, those resurrected bodies we spoke of this morning, different bodies, not, not just better bodies, but entirely different, uh, new in character, not just the seed, but the, the, the entire tree, We'll have those bodies. We will not be capable of sinning. We will not be capable of dying. We will be immortal. We will be clothed in immortality and incorruption. But there will be many who will be mortal. These are those who lived through the tribulation, believed on the name of Jesus Christ. And so, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns. He destroys all of His enemies. He casts Satan into the bottomless pit. The, the rest of the righteous are resurrected unto life. We all now have our resurrected bodies. Uh, we had our resurrected bodies seven years before at the rapture. But the rest, Israel and, the, and the, the martyred saints, they get their resurrected bodies. Everyone now has their resurrected bodies that died any time prior to Jesus' second coming. But there is also this mortal group that believed on the name of the Lord when He came and returned, that did not fight the Lord, that did not accept the mark of the beast, that did not worship the image of the beast, that did not listen to the false prophet. And those mortals are the ones that will then step into the millennial kingdom and they will be God will rule and reign over them. They will have children. They will build houses. We will rule with Jesus Christ at that time. They will continue to have families. Uh, their children will have children. And they will live... Uh, very extended periods of time because the curse will have been lifted. And this is that that, um, dynamic that we're talking about. However, their bodies will still be mortal, right? Which means they will still have that dreaded thing called a sin nature. They will still have those that, that have not died yet, having mortal bodies, having children with mortal bodies, they will still be born with the nature of Adam at this time 
into this kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So though the curse of sin will be removed and the lion will lay down with the lamb and people will live great um, lengths of time, Jesus will be ruling and reigning visibly from the temple. There will still be people who have to make a choice as to whether or not they will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Whether or not they will willingly and gladly humble themselves before Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that not only will people refuse to do so, but there will be entire nations that will not be willing to worship Him. One of the times, places in Scripture where this is mentioned is in Zechariah 14. In Zechariah 14, verse 9 says that the Lord shall be king over all the earth in these days. And then in verses 16 through 19, we see that there will be nations who will refuse to do what Jesus commanded, though Jesus will be ruling and reigning Himself. Look at Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 18 with me. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus Christ will require that every year all of the nations of the earth all of the believing people groups, all of those that hum- humbled themselves at Jesus' return, that did not fight against Jesus, uh, that they will form nations and that these nations would come up every year and would observe the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Scriptures tell us that they will not all be willing to do this. Now, it might take a hundred years. For the first hundred years, everything might be great. And then you get the next generation and the next generation that comes up and they start saying, what's this about this king in Jerusalem, this Lord? Um, Maybe he's not all that hot stuff, right? That's what happens generationally in time. But what, what, what what the parents knew, the children know just a little bit more distance. And what they know in just distance, the grandchildren reject. And this, this happens if we don't constantly renew ourselves in the Word of God and in His teaching. So, these nations will come up, and it says in verse 17, And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not up, and have no rain, there shall be a plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen, that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we know the Old Testament tells us that at this time that Jesus rules, He will rule and reign with a rod of iron. It will be a time of of direct consequences. It will no longer be the age of grace. It will be a time um, of, of strong consequences for actions and immediate consequences for actions. So the nation says, no, we're not going to go up. We're not going to worship the Lord at the, at the, the tabern- uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And God says, fine, no rain. Their nation goes into a great drought and then plagues will begin in their land until such time that they humble themselves before God and they come up and they worship the Lord as they've been called to worship. Now, just because they've been humbled by God doesn't mean they believe, does it? It simply means they are going to do what is necessary to not have these terrible consequences placed upon them. And this is the picture of the millennium. For all of its beauty, 
for all of its splendor, for all of the peace and the joy that God's people will realize and Israel will realize, there will still be unbelievers. And we must keep this in mind. You're still in Revelation 20 as we continue reading. Look with me beginning in verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. At the end of the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ, the Bible says Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit and allowed to once again go about to deceive the hearts of men and to deceive the nations. And it appears that these nations are more than ready to be deceived. For 1,000 years, these people have seen Jesus Christ in person. For 1,000 years, these people have been freed from the deceit and the temptations of Satan. But for all of God's goodness and for all of God's greatness, the nations will be easily deceived into turning against God and turning against God's people. And it won't just be a few, will it? This passage says that they will be as the sand of the sea. I don't know if you've ever been to the sea, but let's just make it local. Go count the numbers of grains of sand in Buffalo Lake. It'd be quite a few. It would take us a while. He says, as many as the sand of the sea. I mean, imagine, people haven't died for a thousand years. Could you imagine what kind of population you could have in a thousand years of people not dying? People living to be a thousand years old and having children and children and children and children. Things, things are going to populate pretty quickly. But this time there will be no battle. Jesus Christ came for His second advent and there was a battle. The nations came against the Lord and the Lord fought them. This time there will be no battle. The nations will surround God's people surround the city of Jerusalem and God will destroy them, the Scriptures say, with the word of His mouth. Fire will come down from heaven and will devour them at God's command. The end. At least for this earth. It's not the end of the Bible. There's still a few things left. Continuing in Revelation 20. Look with me in verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We spoke a couple weeks ago about the second resurrection 
the resurrection of the unbelieving world for judgment. We see this event in Revelation 20. Verse 10, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet already reside. Verse 11, the great white throne of judgment where the unbelieving world will be tried for their sinful works and their refusal to believe on the name of Christ. The book which will decide their fate is the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And verse 15 tells us that those who were not found written in this book, which will be all in this resurrection, were cast into the lake of fire where they will burn in torment forever and ever. And this is the time described in 1 Corinthians 15. We described it two Sundays ago where all things will be put under Jesus' feet, where now there is no more death, no more hell, no more sin, death, hell, cast into the lake of fire, the deceiver, Satan, cast in the lake of fire, the beast and his false prophet, cast into the lake of fire, Everyone who is now still living is in a resurrected body. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over them. God is over Christ. Everything else, everything that has ever opposed itself to God, everything that is opposed to the will of God, everything that is opposed to the character and nature of God is now in the lake of fire where it will burn forever. All things have now been put under Jesus' feet. All things have been made subject to Him. Everyone that is still alive has willingly subjected themselves to Jesus Christ. Jesus will then submit Himself to God, making God all in all. And that's God's plan. That is what He desires. We continue now in Revelation 21 to see what happens next. Beginning in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. God describes the city New Jerusalem following this. He describes its gates. He describes its levels. He describes um, the beauty of the city. He describes the the sea or the the river of life that flows. He describes uh, trees which bear a different fruit every month for the twelve months. He he describes this magnificent place that we call heaven. He describes our inheritance. He describes that there will be no one there of the fearful and unbelieving and murderers and whoremongers and idolaters and liars, for they all have their place in the lake of fire, verse 8, which is the second death. And notice who will be there in Revelation 21, verse 27. There shall in no wise enter into it any that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those 
who have accepted by faith the revealed word of Jesus Christ will be there. Revelation 22 describes the river of this water of life. Verse 3 says there will be no more curse. Verse 5 says there will be no more night, for Jesus will be the light of that city. We will not spend our time describing these concepts tonight. One day we'll walk closely through Revelation. But as we turn our minds toward the end, we cannot help but turn our minds toward the final message in Revelation. Look with me, if you would, in verse 7. John says, Behold, I come quickly. Or Jesus says, Excuse me, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. See, folks, Jesus is the one who has been making himself known throughout this book. It is Jesus who has been revealing himself. Jesus is the one that's coming quickly. Jesus is the one who loved us enough to pave the way for us to get there. But not all will accept this gift. And as we close today, I want to make, uh, take a few moments to, to dwell on why. We've mentioned the gospel quite often in our services lately, and that's been a, a wonderful thing. We've mentioned uh, the call of the gospel and the, the, the way that Christ has secured the gospel for us through His death and through His resurrection. We've mentioned that the purpose of the millennium, one of the main purposes of the millennium, other than to fulfill the promises of God to Israel, will be to show all of history, all of mankind, the angels and men alike, that even under perfect conditions, even with the curse removed and the deceiver bound in chains and Jesus Christ ruling and reigning physically in a mortal or in an immortal uh, but, but um, body, uh, physical body from Jerusalem itself, that there will still be those that refuse to accept Him, that refuse to submit themselves to Him. We read here in Revelation 22, a beautiful, open invitation. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So the question is, if it's so free, if the offer is there, why won't people believe? Why don't people believe? And I'd like us to think about this for our last few moments this evening.
Three reasons why people don't believe. Number one, ignorance. Number two, blindness or deceit. And number three, pride. Willing ignorance. We know that much of the world is ignorant of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but this excuse only goes so far. The Scriptures state quite dogmatically that the creation itself, the created order, testifies of a Creator. Jesus said in Psalm 19.1, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork." These things are not simply ambiguous signs of God. These are definitive signs of the reality of their Creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And it is for this reason that we can definitively say that there is no one ignorant to the point where they can stand before God and say, Well, God, I didn't know. No one will have an excuse the day that they stand before God in judgment because all have a testimony of the reality of their Creator in creation. But just because they know that there is a God doesn't mean that they know everything about that God, much less about His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, there is so much of the world that has never heard the Gospel. There is so much of the world that has never heard the simple truth that there was a man named Jesus who came and died on the cross for them rose again the third day. They have no concept of the degree to which this God that they should clearly know through creation has taken, that the lengths that He has gone to pursue them in love and to save them from their sins. Ignorance reduces the person's feelings of moral responsibility, but it does not any, under any circumstances reduce his actual responsibility or his guilt before God. Whether a person knows or not all that God has done for him, he is responsible one day to stand before God and to answer for what he did know. And this is why the Lord had the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ written. To reveal himself to man and reduce man's ignorance. And so ignorance is one of those things. We have a part to play here knocking on doors every once in a while. I've come to a door where I've asked them if they've ever heard what the Bible says about how they can go to heaven and they say no. Even here, Buffalo, Minnesota, a place heavily Christianized, a place heavily religionized, however you want to say it, there's a lot of religion. There's a lot of Christianity. There's a lot of evangelicalism in this town. There's a lot of churches who claim to believe the Bible. And yet you can knock on doors and find people that have no idea what the Bible says about salvation. They're ignorant. But there's also blindness. When someone recognizes God's handiwork, they, they look at creation and they say, you know what, someone, there's a creator here. Or they hear the Gospel, or they read the Bible, but they fail to see the importance of it to their life, and therefore they ignore it or reject it. We recognize a degree of blindness or deception, perhaps self-deception, that has taken hold. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 tell us this, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The world is deceived in many ways today. It's deceived by the pleasures of sin. Sin telling them that that sin is more important or better than what God could ever offer them. It's deceived by the false teaching of evil men. Evil men telling them that their way is better than God's way. It's deceived by the false promises of this world. Promises of fame and glory for those who would follow the path of worldliness and greed and lust and adultery. And it's not that the world is not looking for something to satisfy them. It's not that the majority of the world doesn't want to go to heaven. It's not that the majority of the world doesn't realize that there is such thing as truth or that there is such thing as a God in heaven. And it's certainly not that God has failed to reveal himself to the world, but rather the world has been deceived. It has been blinded. It has lost sight of the reality of God and their responsibility in light of who God is. The blindness of the hearts and minds of men is the most basic of all reasons why they have not believed. Yes, there is an amount of ignorance, but usually it's not ignorance that keeps a person from believing. It's what happens when they are confronted with the gospel. What happens when they're confronted with that creator? What happens when they even in their ignorance, look around and see design. Are they going to accept that design as from being from a creator God or are they going to reject it as as being something of man's own doing? Lifting himself up in pride above God. But so much of the world is deceived into thinking that the world around them is more real or more important or more relevant or more satisfying than the truths of God's word. They're deceived. But unfortunately, there's a third level. And these are progression. All men start out with, at best, ignorance. Then as they are confronted with the reality of God, they don't see His importance. They are blind. They are deceived into thinking that God is not important or God is not necessary. But there comes a point in many lives where they are confronted through the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the fact that that God is what they need. That the truth is what they need. That this is true and this is important and this is essential to their lives. The deepest expression of unbelief is when men, having both heard and recognized his responsibility, knowingly and willfully rejects it. In a very real way, every unbeliever reaches this point at some point where he realizes this truth as he's convicted by the Holy Spirit and hardens himself against it. And so men will not believe because they are ignorant, because they are deceived, and because they are proud. They're willingly ignorant. They have hardened themselves. They have personally, knowing the Word of God and knowing its relevance, rejected it. Now, it's not our job as believers to break their pride. That's God's job. But we do have the distinct opportunity, as I mentioned, to help others out of their ignorance and to even help others through their blindness. That as they look at the truths of God's Word and say, I don't see how these are relevant to me, to help them through that process. 
to declare to the world around us that there is a God that they are accountable to. We can't convince them of the truth. That's God's job. But we can live the truth, teach the truth to a world that needs it, draw them out of ignorance, draw them out of blindness, and even every once in a while, see somebody completely reverse themselves from being an enemy of God, having known His expectations and rejected them, to bringing themselves to a place of humble submission. And so as we finish this series, we've, we've thought now about the millennium and we've thought about after the millennium, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven will, will forever be with the Lord and Jesus Christ's great offer at the end of Revelation 22 that whosoever will may come. Are we living out the testimony of Jesus Christ? When people see us, hear us, Watch us interact with each other's families and his churches. Do they see the whosoever will may come gospel that Jesus Christ presents? Are we seeking to help people out of their ignorance and out of their blindness and even perhaps out of their pride and help them to recognize their need? That's our privilege. Because we're, we, we already have our tickets booked and our bags packed for this time. Our resurrected bodies, if you're a believer in this room, they're, they're there. They're waiting. It's, it's going to happen. You will rule and reign with Christ. You will be immortal in this time. You will no longer have to make the decision to serve Him. You will no longer fight with a sin nature. But Jesus' purposes will still be working out until the time when all things are put under His feet. And how are we doing helping others see the need to be on Jesus' side when that time comes? Let's pray together.